Dimelang Abusheni and hello hi Mzanzi. Welcome back to Sisters Without Shame, a No Hold Spot podcast that is proudly brought to you by Healthful Mzanzi. I am your host, Nolutando Ngakani, and I'm here to hold your hand as you seek the answers to those pussy bumps and suspicious lumps you dare not speak of in public. So your guys, Mukaba must fall, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who always feels a little sensitive about the carry pack around their waist. To unpack some of the emotional and psychological impacts of carrying extra weights, this week we are joined by Dr. Mutumang Diaho, who is the founder and medical director of the Lifestyle Clinic Spiral Aloe, an organization that is dedicated to promoting lifestyle as the only medicine. She has also worked as a public health practitioner for more than 30 years and has practiced medicine in various clinics and hospitals in Lesotho, Swaziland, and Mzanzi. So then, Doc, can you tell us what is the emotional and psychological impact of carrying extra weight? Just to come from practice and what one sees and a little bit of theory is that because being carrying extra weight creates an environment for the individual stigma and discrimination because of societal expectations. And anything, therefore, no matter what it is, that creates stigma, then impacts on the individual in a negative way. And what results is a whole range of psychological disorder from minimum anxiety, refusal to go into spaces, even ending up to depression occasionally, even suicide, in cases where it's become severe for the individual but it's a relationship between the individual and how they are perceived by society and how they perceive themselves in that society that creates those psychological disorders. Can you tell us what are some solutions that may help us to overcome the negative emotions that are associated with carrying extra weight? So I think because we're holistic in our approach to extra weight and other things that patients present with, First, we have to start before we throw the solution with an understanding. So we particularly pay attention to a very deep root cause analysis. Why did this person end up where they are? Otherwise, you're going to go straight into solution mode and treatment without actually understanding why the person is this. Is it genetics? Is it something that happened? Is it the behavior of the person? So my approach is a very thorough analysis and history of a very holistic approach in the questionnaire in trying to understand how you got there in the first place. Is it something that started from when you were young? Is it something that's recently there? All of that history is very important for us to come to a better solution when you come up with solutions. So the solutions will come out from that deep interviewing about history. And they range from anything that ends up, you mentioned the word embarrassment, and how do you treat that? Some of it verges on minimum psychological disorders in the manner in which the person treats. So we would refer for treatment, actually, an intervention using cognitive behavioral therapy and a very deep understanding of trying to understand so that you give the person coping mechanisms so that on the under, as you try to intervene and try to help them with weight loss, 
you actually give the person sufficient tools to cope, they finally lose the weight. Sometimes to the extent that we send people for professional treatment and short-term treatment to deal with the depression and other anxiety and psychological disorders that have resulted as a result of carrying overweight. So in summary, therefore, it's not just throwing the solutions in, it is going very deep in finding out what cost the overweight. It might even be a genetic disorder or something else. In some instances, people arrive at the doctor's offices and they'll never disclose unless you ask that there might have been a traumatic incident in their youth and weight is a mask and a comfort that they use to hide behind. So there's a whole range of things, but you can only bring them out if you do a very proper history and analysis and a proper root cause analysis of that. So the solutions are there, but you have to start with a very good history. What is the link between, you know, food and our mental health? It's a range. On the one spectrum, food is medicine. If you eat good food, as we used to do in the old communities, food is medicine in its rarest form. When you pick it raw, anywhere in the world, you eat it, it's medicine. We shouldn't actually be eating anything else, including supplements. On the other side, the other end of the spectrum is when we use food as comfort. And that's the more common manifestation that we see, is that when people are struggling with anything at all, and we're all different, food becomes the comforter. It becomes the blanket. So it is not to say everybody else, but in very many cases, food becomes either in short term or overall, it just becomes a comforter. When you get home, you just go straight to the fridge and find comfort food and eat it. It is important to understand why. Why is food for this individual a comfort? What are you trying to heal by eating? So you can only then get to the next stage. One thing to say, yeah, I'm eating so that I feel comfortable, but you need to really get to the root cause of why and sit on it because that's the only way you'll find an appropriate solution. How can you then stop yourself from becoming hopeless when you do not see the results in a weightless journey? In anything that you encounter in life, Carrying extra weight is a challenge you face as an individual. Not being accepted in a course that you want, of course, they range in the impact. But reaching a state of hopelessness is why we're here, so that we can actually work with the individual to come out. And it comes from constant support. As I said, there are many modalities. You start with a very good understanding, working with cognitive behavioral therapy, understanding why that person is that. And all the time, you're handing over tools for coping in life generally, so that as they discover new ways of coping, whether it is losing weight, they have a bag of tools that they can then use. If you have done your work, you need to pull people out of hopelessness. So your work and other practitioners that you work with is constantly supporting the individual, bringing in friends, bringing in the tribe, bringing in family, bringing a whole set of support systems so that they can work with body systems and all of those. There are many ways of intervening so that you bring a net of support, whether it starts with medication that is short-term, a group of friends, you have to bring everything to pull the person out of hopelessness, but also hand over tools that will get them as an individual to walk back into society with confidence again and knowledge of which tool to pull when so that they can cope out there. Do these things that people call happy hormones that's actually the basis at a chemical level of explaining what happens at a chemical level. So your dopamine, 
the happy hormone, the serotonin, which we use with drugs like Prozac so that your serotonin levels get high, oxytocin, the bonding hormone. But having said that, we also now know scientifically that those hormones, I call them the cocktail of happiness hormones, that you need to get them. You need to get them to a certain level. But how you get them to a certain level, I always say to people, if we can get them to the happy state that makes you happy without using drugs and substitute the drugs with you learning new coping mechanism that substitute you getting to a certain level of dopamine or serotonin that makes you happy without. And that's possible. That's what therapy is all about. Giving you that cocktail of happiness without you needing medication to get there. And there are mechanisms to do that. Lifestyle medicine and other interventions of lifestyle have been very successful in getting people to that state of happiness without needing chemical interventions. And that's ultimately what every therapist aims for. Let's get into body dysmorphia. Can you tell us what is this concept of body dysmorphia is? When I saw that, I thought, wow, you know, it takes me back because there are actually newer things that are coming into that definition. So it was first described in 1891 by an Italian psychiatrist. So it's as old as that. When people become obsessed with either an imagined body dysmorphia or a minimum body dysmorphia. You know, the mirror is lying type of thing. So this is where the other person doesn't actually think or generally think you have a problem and you're completely obsessed that you do. As we see more, the practice of cosmetic surgery increasing. One of the biggest things that's happening is in training beauticians and plastic surgeons to be very, very highly aware of body dysmorphia. I attended a lecture where one guy who was training said up to 60%, up to 60% of people that present in a plastic surgeon's room for cosmetic intervention have underlying psychological deforms. And you need to go back to that thing I said about finding the reason why they want to change their nose, why they think their stomach is big, why they think, so that your intervention, even if you ultimately do that, is deeply understood. It's a serious problem. And that's even before Instagram happened. Because again, it is the view by society and it escalates someone who either one, already had underlying anxiety disorders. But two, even those people that were fairly confident. I mean, you look at your friend on Instagram, it completely just escalates your feeling of unworthiness. And it is how society now perceives us that's escalating this body dysmorphia epidemic, if you call it. And so that's where it really comes from. And the way to treat it is to understand what drives it, why the individual thinks that they are not worthy, and treat it appropriately. And as I said, even if you do cosmetic interventions, you must have an underlying treatment plan for that patient. First of all, it is dealing with the psychological underlying issues. And then you treat with drugs where necessary, but support is always very, very fundamental before the actual intervention of treating the dysmorphia. Because if you go straight to treating the perceived dysmorphia, the client might actually come back with something else. So it's important to find out what the, the root cause of that is. I see so many horror stories of, you know, women in the UK sometimes traveling to Turkey to get uh, what they call a Brazilian butt lift. And then some of them don't even make it back because the surgery is so dangerous. This one is a really big emerging concept, especially in younger women. And I must say that, 
Body dysmorphia is a disorder in males too, but in males, the most common presentations, again, perceived societal standards of how a body should look like is usually backing up and muscle, hair loss. And in women, it's everything starting with breasts and butt, which is the biggest thing. And the danger is that there's, like anything else, there's a whole lot of clinics that are propping up everywhere with people that are not qualified, who are doing underground treatments with butt lifts and people dying and all of that. So when I started by saying it's become a real issue, it's because the constant bombardment of what beauty looks like, defined by society. And what you see on, on social media and all of that, it just really adds on to the problem. So in, I think our role as practitioners is to make sure that the individual fully understands and is comfortable with the way they look, first of all, before we do anything else. My last question then to you would be, since we've made all these resolutions at the beginning. January resolution. <laughs> How do we, you know, keep momentum and yeah, maintain yeah, our weight? Yeah. It's, it's an excellent question, actually, because all of us do, and only about 30% or less would have sustained those by the end of January. So here is where lifestyle medicine enters and behavioral therapy. And this is about long-term solutions to those resolutions. It is not about saying, I want to use 30 Ks in one month. You know, some of them are quite ridiculous and that's actually why we don't sustain them. It is sitting down and having a very realistic, comprehensive plan that looks at what I call all aspects of your well-being, those including your mental wellness, your support systems, the food you eat, your movement, which is exercise, and your interactions, if you work, your workplace stress, all of those things. So you have a full comprehensive look. Because when you have a comprehensive look at what interventions you're going to do long term, you are recreating and rewriting your own lifestyle intervention. It's much more sustainable because you're giving yourself a realistic goal to say, I will do this over a period. But not only stop there, but this has become my new way of living. This has become my lifestyle. And we work here and we call it lifestyle is the medicine. Because then you start changing those aspects to support your lifestyle. So it becomes long-term. New York resolutions, nobody ever really, very few people can sustain that. Not for long-term anyway. So we work very deeply with lifestyle interventions for long-term success. So avoid the quick fixes. No. And when I say the quick fix, for instance, once your plan is designed and you know what to do, how, the, the quick fixes are to kickstart the program. So for instance, weight loss, there are actually instances where you have to lose weight for your health. So you do that, but you must have a plan. So what after? Once you lose the weight and you reach your target weight, how are you going to sustain it into the long term? That's where your lifestyle intervention comes in. You learn new behaviors as you hear. In order to succeed with your New Year's resolutions, you must change very little things, which means you must change everything about your lifestyle. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Sisters Without Shame, Dr. Mutumang. For more on the emotional and psychological impacts of carrying extra weight, check out healthformzanzi.co.za. And remember, if you are in a medical jam and looking for a shoulder to cry on, you can send an email to hello at healthfilmzanzi.co.za or even send us a WhatsApp on 076-1320454. I would never blue tick you, babes.
You may be wondering if obesity causes mental health issues or vice versa. The fact of the matter is that the nature of the relationship between obesity and mental health differs from person to person. For some people, emotional distress may lead to overeating. Food can serve as a way to cope with stress, which can result in excessive weight gain and obesity. Power is in your mind. That brings us to the end of episode 48 of Sisters Without Shame, proudly brought to you by Health from Zanzi. From me, Nolutando Ngakani. Have a great week and remember to show your girl some love by sharing this podcast with a friend.